Hello, welcome to The Ripple, a podcast diving into closure programs and libraries. This week, I'm talking about teaching closure with Eric Normand, the creator of purelyfunctional.tv. Welcome to the show, Eric. Hey, thank you, Daniel. It's a great pleasure to be here. I've listened to your podcast since the beginning and read your newsletter, and I'm just very happy to finally get to talk to you. Yeah, so it's great to be able to talk with you too. Uh, I've been you know, reading your newsletter and all the other things that you've been doing since basically when I started using Clojure quite a long time ago. And yeah, you've been kind of there all the way through my Clojure journey. So it's great to finally be able to talk. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was a recent course that you created and released and just a, a week or two ago called Ripple Driven Development in Clojure. So I wondered if you could talk to us about that course and then about sort of what it is you do in the Clojure community. So Rebel Driven Development and Clojure is a video course. It's about nine hours of video. Wow. Yeah, pretty long. You know, you never know how long it's going to be when you first start and it just keeps going. So one of the things that I think is a good sign of healthy Clojure programmer is that they use the REPL a lot. And by REPL, like, I don't mean it's just like the prompt and you type a lot of stuff in the prompt. I mean, you are using the fact that you are interacting with a live system. And so that might be a redefining functions. It might be testing out an expression or two to see what it does might be even looking at documentation, doc strings that are already in the environment and doing this live, right? Let's say you're working on a web server, you got your web server running and you connect up to the REPL, usually through your editor, and you modify it. You make it do something else and it's completely different from the sort of rest of the world, uh, the non-LISP world where you would say, modify your files on disk, and then either compile them and run them. So you'd have to shut down the server. Or you might have something that's more like a scripting language that's not compiled. Let's just call them non-compiled language, where it reads in the file and runs it anew on each request. That would be something like Ruby or PHP. And so what you don't have is any kind of state saved between requests, right? Like you don't have memory, a shared memory. Whereas on the JVM, you do have that, except if you're doing a compiled program, you're going to have to shut down the JVM and start it up again and lose all your state. So Clojure gives you this really nice ability, this nice workflow where you're compiling, running very small units. You can test things as you edit them. Like you can kind of grow a function at every step, know that it's working. It's like a superpower of Clojure. I don't think any of the other mainstream languages do it as well as Clojure does. So a lot of people have made the leap from like not using REPL-driven development to doing REPL-driven development, you know, somewhere along their journey learning Clojure. But a lot of people hadn't, and there's not a lot of good material out there. I think there's just a lot of mentoring going on. Like people figure it out by watching other people, but a lot of people don't have a mentor in Clojure. And I started getting requests for it. People have just been asking for like, how do you do this thing that people keep talking about? Stuart Holloway had a couple of talks about rebel-driven development, some blog posts, some videos. And 
his material was great, but it wasn't like a complete course, a complete guide. And so I decided uh, needed to make it happen. So I did that. You know, one, one thing that a lot of the material out there does not address, which I think is very important, is how intimately you need to understand the semantics of the language. So the semantics of VARs and how DEFs create VARs or modify VARs, depending on if they already exist, how namespaces work. Those kinds of things, you really need to understand those so that you understand what's going to happen when you reevaluate this function, you know, reload a namespace and what is that doing? You need to understand that so that you can choose the right steps to interact with your live system. So I made sure that that was like a very prominent part of the course. So the course is available for purchase now, or you can become a member of Purely Functional TV and get that in all the other courses. Nice. And so Purely Functional TV is, I think, the main way about you since the beginning, which is your training, teaching, mentoring site. Yeah. What can we do at Purely Functional TV? Yeah. So Purely Functional TV is, it's a membership site where I publish video courses. I also have other content that's free, like text guides, right? Textual blog posts, if you want articles, things like that. But the main content is the video courses and you can get a membership and you can also buy the courses individually. So this is my main source of income right now. I know you said you wanted to talk about like more the business side, but this is my job now is creating courses and supporting the members that I have and trying to get more people to learn and enjoy closure. Yeah, I think ripple driven development is such an obvious in hindsight course to do. But as you say, like, I don't think there's been sort of scattered blog posts or people talking about it or different sort of facets of the problem. But I remember when I first started using closure that it took me quite a while to piece together, you know, what does it look like to develop a closure system? Right. Even now there was a Clojureverse thread about a year or maybe more ago about different ripple workflows that people had and there were so many different ways that people did the REPL you know how they interacted with their programs and it was really interesting to sort of look at how different ideas because I sometimes wonder like am I doing this the best way I could are there tools or techniques or ways that I should be debugging or developing that I'm not using so every now and again I sort of look around and see what tips and tricks I can pick up so yeah having like a comprehensive from the beginning, like here's all of the the things you need to know about closure development. This sort of seems like the missing link in many ways from a junior closure developer to an intermediate one, possibly. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I hope I don't sound mean because I really love beginners. Um, but I've seen this happen so many times. Is one of the things that inspired me to actually do the course. You'll see someone come into like let's say Slack or the IRC channel. And they have a question. In a lot of languages, you might say, like, go read the manual. Like, it's all in the manual. So you just link the documentation. But it's not even something like that. It's something where they say, like, what happens if I pass an empty list to this function? And it's surprising because, well, if you're doing closure, you can just type that into the REPL. 
like why would you switch over to slack and ask people and like hope that their right people are online and hope that you can ask it the right way and that they give you the right answer when you could just type that in and see what happens and and it's it's those kinds of interactions where you realize no people don't know about this repl driven stuff it's the same thing that happens when they complain about this totally justified complaining about the startup times of closure and when you dig into it you realize oh they're restarting their server like every change they don't realize that's not how we do it in closure that you know we don't just have like oh a better way than the restarting it's like a better way than every way right you have <laughs> it's completely you never restart your server right or rarely let's just say it's like it's so rare you don't even think about it not only can you like do the whole like oh i'll reload this page and i'll see the change before you even do that you can test that it's going to give you the right thing before you like look at it in your browser right and you can query like you know you could I mean, even simple stuff like you can put, you can create a new atom while the server is running. You're like, you're, you're, you got a bug, right? So you create a new atom and you say, okay, every request that comes through, I need to be able to inspect it. So just add it to this atom. And so then you hit reload. Everything is saved in an atom. And now you can look at the data right there. I mean, who else can do that? It's just an amazing thing that we've got. Yeah, I completely agree. So uh, you've been teaching, mentoring people sometimes directly and sometimes indirectly through your courses uh, in Clojure. So I would guess you've seen probably a pretty high number of new and developing Clojure programmers. Are there any sort of common things you've seen, things you've learned, maybe sort of common things that people get tripped up on that you've seen over time? Yeah, I think people get tripped up on how simple Clojure is. Let me give an example of something I've seen. Again, this a lot of this just happens in like Slack or IRC, right? Like someone just comes in and asks a question. And these are kinds of questions where it's like, okay, am I really going to like go down to the basics and teach this stuff? So here's an example. Someone was trying to use an atom and they had made an atom in the normal way, right? They probably found some code online that showed how to do it. So it was like def X is Adam with a vector in it, right? And they knew that atoms were used for mutable state and they were trying to modify the vector inside. So they thought that Adam was some kind of syntax that makes the thing inside mutable. Hmm, right. That's what I mean where they don't realize how simple it is. It's like, no, the vector is a thing and atom is a separate thing. And they don't really cross. Like you can put anything in an atom. Like the atom doesn't do anything to the vector, right? The atom is just an object. You could actually look at the source code. It's just a function that constructs an object. And those kinds of things where it's like, oh, you don't have magic syntax for this and that and the other thing. It's just a function that constructs an object. I think those kinds of things trip people up quite a lot. I also see people doing a lot of, um, oh, 
they use def inside of a function. They're implementing imperative code. They see that def creates a variable and assigns a value to it. And so they just use that everywhere instead of using a let. Things like that, where it's like, okay, you're getting there. It solves the problem, right? It, it gets the right answer. And that's great. Like, I think that that's awesome that they're able to get through that initial part of learning where things really are are tough because there's so much to learn to get into a new language. But then you kind of have to step back and say, okay, now you're at this point where you have to know that def should not be used like that. Def is for top level things. So now you get into like, well, what do you use instead? <laughs> and now you're, it's sort of like a, a fork. It's like, okay, so what are you really trying to do? Are you trying to just give something a name for this like little local context? Okay, that's a let. Are you trying to create something so that you can get data out of this function, right? Because that's a whole other discussion. Like, do you really need that? Or, you know, maybe you do. Like, for instance, you could have an atom and you're sharing data between two different functions, right? That's, I've done that before, you know, it's, it's a possibility. Or are you creating, are you implementing a, an imperative algorithm and you really, to do it in an imperative way, you need mutation inside of a loop or something. And so that's another discussion, right? And so those are the things that I really like getting into because it shows you how deep this goes. Like, how did the people on this side of that divide, right, who, who are capable closurists, how did we get here? How did we get from global variables everywhere to knowing like, oh, sometimes I need an atom and sometimes I need to use a loop. You know, I can change the state every time through the loop. Sometimes it's just a let. How did we get here? We're, we're, we're able to see all these different uses for things. Okay, so you were asking me about teaching and mentoring and I, I have made some notes about things. The thing about REPL-driven development that reminds me of this is I was hesitant to make this course at first. The reason being, like, if you had asked me a year ago, like, would you make a course on rebel-driven development? I'd be like, yeah, but what does that really mean? You know, like, everyone's got a different workflow, and there's all these different editors, and is there really one thing called rebel-driven development? But the more I, like, think about it and get into it and really engage with people who need to learn it, the more I realize, yeah, there is a thing, right? And I know it. And now through seeing what these beginners do not know, I see, ah, yes, this is how I can teach it. How I can, you know, is there a thing as rebel-driven development? I'm not sure. Because like you said in this Clojureverse thread, there were so many different workflows. Everybody's got a different thing that they've picked up over time. It's evolved over time. But what is common, right? What is the thing that they're able to, you know, point at that this is where it's REPL driven development. Oh, that's just a workaround because I'm using this editor that doesn't have this tool. But, you know, you can figure it out. It just takes a lot of thought and deep digging. But what I'm saying is like, the more I teach, the more I realize I do know more than I think I do, right? It was all in there. Like I, I did have to research some things like different editors that I don't use, but the core stuff was totally, I already knew all of it. I just hadn't organized it into a course yet. 
Another point that I have is that that I've learned over time is that programming is too hard. <laughs> it just really <laughs> is. And I don't mean the the I guess the cool part of programming, which is where you get to like make ideas real, right? And like anything you can imagine you can create. That part is cool and that's always going to be hard. I'm talking about the like get your editor set up like you got some weird thing going on in your machine and you Google the error message and no one else has had it before. All the package managers you need to get anything working. Uh, it's just that all that stuff is just too hard. And I feel like we've really over the last 20 years, like painted ourselves into these corners in every language community. It's not just closure. It's everywhere. It's just this amount of stuff you have to know is just too much. Like, how does someone learn Git? How does someone learn all the Unix command line stuff? Like all that is just incredible, incredibly like arcane. And I, I just feel for anybody starting today, it's really hard. Okay, another thing that I've learned over time is that people are smart, even if they're beginners. I know a lot of, there's a lot of like, dissing of of users you know I, i've heard a lot of people say all oh, users are, are stupid they don't know what they're doing and they need all this help and the more i create courses and teach people online the more i realize no they're smart there's just a lot to learn and they're kind of overwhelmed continuously when they're learning like there's just so much stuff to learn but they're smart people they want to be spoken to like intelligent people. They can tell when you're oversimplifying or dumbing something down. They want a deep experience. They want to be told like the straight dope about the thing. And I had this period where I was thinking, you know, the value I bring as a teacher is to find a path through all the myriad things you have to learn and just stick to that path and get them to a place, right? And so I'll give you an example of one of the courses where I did this is uh, web development enclosure. I taught just enough material to get someone to be able to make a to-do list app and deploy it to Heroku. And a lot of people found it successful, but a lot of people are like, oh yeah, but what is, what is a get request? What is actually going on there? You know, you say that this ring request is an HTTP request. But what is that? What are all these header things that you keep talking about? Like, so I didn't explain any of that stuff. And this is kind of going to be a, a deep thing. But I realize now that one of the reasons that we like ring in the closure world is because it gives us access to kind of the, the raw HTTP request, but in a very convenient format for us. It's in a hash map. Mm-hmm. And we like the control. We like to write our own middleware that does exactly what we want it to instead of you know relying on a framework where half of our time is spent configuring the framework, the other half is spent finding a plugin for the framework to do what we want, right? Or like figuring out where can I plug this thing in to make it do this thing. And since what we want is that control and that, I guess, deep engagement with the protocol, 
right? Just give me the raw HTTP and I'll stream back raw HTTP. And it'll be this like glorious thing where I'm interacting with your browser. I have to teach that. That is the thing to teach. The protocol and how browsers make requests. And why is it that with a form, you can only do get and post, but there's delete and put that no one talks about, right? What is a method, right? All these things, what is MIME? What is a MIME content body? Like, what is this stuff? MIME type content, you know, accept asterisk slash asterisk. What is that, right? All these things that I somehow have picked up over the years of working on the web. <laughs> and like, now that I know them, I love being able to get in there in the raw in the, the raw HTTP request and raw HTTP response. I love it. And so that's what I have to teach is how to get someone to love that so that they don't want the framework. Because that's what the framework does is it, it hides that from them, but now they're safe. They don't have to, not that they don't have to learn it. It's that they can start working without learning all that stuff. So anyway, in my next version, which I'm not announcing, I don't know when I'm going to do this, but the next version of the web development course will be that. It will be the web from the perspective of Clojure, a Clojure programmer. So you heard it here. I'm not announcing a date. I have not even really started working on it yet, but I know that that's what it's going to have to be. That's a massive topic. You know, the web is just so big and it's kind of in some ways a little bit cruel that you're saying there's so much for beginners to learn and there isn't any language but i think the web in particular is just so you know what it means to do web development is so sprawling um and you have to learn you know many different languages environments concepts client server http a little bit of networking like there's just so much stuff there and yeah so if you can if you can simplify that and explain that you know that that's a lot of work yeah, that's, I mean, that's the challenge. And I know this, you know, I'd said my last course was nine hours. This might be 20 or 30, a hundred hours. I have no idea. <laughs> and of course you have to chart some kind of path through it so that they're not overwhelmed. You can't just start with everything, but I think that there is a path. It's kind of been brewing in the back of my mind. I'm seeing it more and more like I have to create closure programmers. Like, Instead of saying, okay, you're a closure programmer and you want to learn how Ring works, which is kind of how I saw it before. It's more like I have to make it so that someone can finally appreciate why closure programmers like Ring so much. Because a lot of people don't. I mean, a lot of people do appreciate it who, you know, are coming from it, coming at it from a certain place, certain amount of experience. But a lot of people look at it and they're like, what? That's it? That's all I get? Is the HTTP request <laughs> like, like, where do I go from here? You know, and I want to get them to the point where they're like, oh, all I get is the HTTP request, and that's perfect because now I can do what I need to do. So I feel like that's one of the great things about closure is that we don't overcomplicate things. We add a very small layer of indirection. And it's a high leverage layer of indirection. And then we kind of say, okay, there, here it is. Like, you don't have to parse this HTTP request from raw character streams. Like, we're giving it to you in a really nice format. And that's all we're doing. It's similar to how the CSV parser is in Clojure. 
It's just like, here's a vector of strings. It's a vector of vectors of strings, or it's a lazy list of vectors of strings. Whereas I know in like other languages, they'll do things like turn it into hash maps for you, like assume that the first row is a header, you know, and, and, and do things where it's like, well, you're making assumptions now. <laughs> like CSV does not specify that. Like CSV is just commas <laughs> it's on the new lines, like and quotes in case you need them. Like there's not much more than that. And closure as a language, very much I feel as a community, we recognize that. Like the useful thing that this library can do is as little as possible and let the end programmer do what what they need to with it. Mm, I like that. That idea that the useful thing is to do as little as possible kind of distills a, a pretty key aspect of a lot of closure libraries, which I've never quite heard expressed in that way. So yeah, I like that. It's one of the things I really love about our community. And it's not the kind of thing that you can like shout about, like we do as little as possible and that's why we're great. <laughs> you know, I think that there's a lot of, I guess, magic in some other language communities where it's like, we do the, we do the right thing. 90% of the time and that other 10% go find another library <laughs> and those kinds of things I don't know I feel like they're not for me because I'm always I somehow I'm always in the 10% and yeah I just want just parse me those commas out and handle the edge cases and and that's it just give it to me raw that's that's the kind of person I am so you've been you know, working in the closure community for a while and you know video courses is something you're pretty well known for but what are some other things people might have gotten from you or want to get from you in the future uh right i'm probably best known for my newsletter so it's a it's a weekly newsletter email newsletter um that is made to inspire closure programmers um it used to be like 10 10 links, 10 things that I liked during the week, but it's evolved now to be uh, more teaching, you know, more kind of like, here's some, some useful closure knowledge, but of course it evolves over time. It's been many different things. So get on that. If you're interested, if you haven't gotten it in a while, I know that as your list grows, it's more common to get like put in spam folders and things. And I have met people who are like, Hey, you haven't done your newsletter in a while. <laughs> I'm like, uh, yeah, it's every week, uh, you know, for the past five years, I haven't missed a week, you know, <laughs> like you're up to episode 327. That's right. I typically don't miss any. So yeah, you might want to resubscribe. Like you might not be getting them anymore. Let's see what else. So I've got a podcast and the podcast is about functional programming in general. So it's called Thoughts on Functional Programming. And it started as me working on ideas for a book that I'm writing for the general programming community, not closure specifically, about functional programming. I feel like functional programming has not really broken out of academia in a useful way. Of course, a lot of ideas have come out of academia and are now being applied in production, but they're still very academic. It's like still people reading papers or textbooks about functional programming. The people who read them and study them 
become like academicians, like sort of armchair academicians. And I think that there's a whole army of people who are doing functional programming in a sort of software engineering as opposed to the computer science. So software engineering stuff with it, that's just not being written down. Their perspectives and things are not being are not being talked about in books. Uh, so, you know, books are like a, a literature. They're like a discussion format. And if you look at object-oriented books, there's all sorts of books about like design patterns and how to architect your OO code. And, you know, there, there's just a, a lot of discussion there. But there's a lot of functional programmers and we don't have a lot of discussion. And so I wanted to make a book that kind of opened that discussion up. Like, let's talk about this in a much more practical and friendly way and talk about, like, what are we doing as functional programmers that is, that is different from object-oriented programming. So my podcast is me exploring those ideas. And then recently I kind of got, went to, I call it season two, where I'm going through functional programming ideas, explaining them. It's much less just my thoughts and much more like a systematic, like, let's just teach this thing. So that's what it is now. I have a lot of subscribers. I get a lot of good feedback on it. Not trying to toot my own horn, just saying like, you should check it out. If you're interested in hearing uh, functional programming ideas, but from a much more practical perspective, yeah, there's going to be a link in the show notes. So Great. And so the book... I think I can announce this now. It's very close to being in the early access. Wow. Right. So it's going to be published with Manning. And they have a program where before the book is 100% ready, you can buy a PDF version and, and also the online like HTML version. You know, you get it at a discount and then you get updates as they come out. Right. So new chapters come out or, you know, I edit an older chapter or something and that that will come out and you'll be notified and, you know, you can bask in the novel chapter. You know, we've kind of mentioned a few times you've been doing this for a little while and I feel like you've probably got a decent perspective on sort of what's changed, especially in terms of people new to the closure community over time and maybe people's attitudes coming to closure. What stayed the same? What's different that you've seen? Right. Well, the big thing is that it is now much more mainstream. Closure itself is like a viable option. And I think just in a larger context, like any non-top three language is now a viable option. When I started with Closure, if I mentioned that I did Closure to another programmer, they'd be like, why don't you just use Java? Like, how is it better than that, <laughs> right? And it was just very hard to explain that like different languages are better at different things. And, you know, the the idea was that like Java has everything you need and like, why are you, why are you searching elsewhere? And this is the same for Ruby. If you mentioned you were into Ruby or, man, I don't even know if Erlang was on people's radar back then. I don't know if it's just the number of programmers has exploded or what, but it's now possible to not be a Java programmer, right? And so that's great. You can just be much more open about closure, about liking closure. Uh, the community is way bigger. That's for sure. 
I lost track. I think back in 2011, I started making a list of everyone who was active enough to like have a blog or like seen them in a conference talk, you know, Mm -hmm. and I had a list going with like, oh, here's the link to their blog and here's the book they wrote and here's their conference talks. And man, I, that's impossible now. It's, there's just too many people. I mean, if you look at the number of companies that claim to use closure, it's just enormous. There's just no way to reconcile that with like, oh, I'm going to keep up with all these. And then, so there's more projects too. Like, I, I don't know, it must've been three or four years ago where I just, like I was following, just to get like ideas for the newsletter, like things to link to in the newsletter. I was following some people who were pretty good at like, keeping up with all the projects that were coming out and I could keep up with that feed and sort of figure out, Oh yeah, I see what this is about. I I see why I would need this. And, but now it's just too much. I cannot keep up. And I realize it's not the kind of thing I like doing anyway. My newsletter was never really about news. (laughs) It wasn't like, here's the new thing. Like, you know how you, you, I guess you have to do in the JavaScript world. It was much more like about fundamentals, about even like this talk was given in 1972 and we just found a recording. Everyone should watch this more so than like the new Closure Conj videos came out. So let's watch those. No, this old talk is actually (laughs) much more uh, useful. So watch that. And uh, so, yeah, I just gave up following stuff. And I still get people asking me questions like, Hey, I'm, I'm trying to connect this, uh, this library to this database and like, I'm having trouble. Do you know how to do it? And I'm like, I've never heard of that database, <laughs> that library. Like, oh, I guess it is a thing. Look, it's on GitHub. Like, but I don't know what that is. And they're like, what? You've never used this? Like, how can you live? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't try every new thing that comes out. I try to find stable things that I can rely on for a long time. And this one just never crossed my radar, you know? So that has changed. Like I remember back in the day, I got into closure in 2008, back in the day when libraries would come out, they were mostly rappers. So it was someone made a closure idiomatic wrapper around some existing Java library. And that was a big deal. And that kind of tapered off because I guess the important ones got wrapped and then that phase was over. We didn't need to do that anymore. And then we had this kind of explosion with, I think David Nolan like entered the scene (laughs) and we had this explosion of like core logic and all these things that were like, oh my goodness, we're going to have so much power versus other languages, you know, when compared to other languages that it's not going to be fair. And I just was waiting for this time when like it would just all get connected together and we would just, I don't know, be so much more productive than any language. It'd be obvious that you'd have to go into closure to compete. But that, of course, never happened. And now, you know, it's just like new things popping up here and there, but I don't see any real patterns to them, you know, which is fine. I think it just means that our community is big enough that there's sub communities, there's little pockets in it. And you can't really be in all of them. Yeah. Interesting insights over over time. I'm sort of haven't been around quite as long as you. So I, I certainly remember those those days of it felt like every other week 
there was some sort of groundbreaking new like yeah here's core async here's core logic mm-hmm. here's like this program rewriting program rewriting program and yeah i definitely think we don't see quite as much of that anymore and yeah i mean it's probably interesting to sort of look at why is it just all of the good ideas have been had well probably not i hope we're not like sort of out of good ideas but certainly i think closure feels like it's at a more stable or mature place in terms of those kinds of innovations yeah that's a really interesting phenomenon i'm not sure what's going on because a lot of it like if you plotted stuff on a timeline would you see like this big bunch of closely grouped spikes of like oh look at all this creativity and it just kind of tapers off into where it's like oh and now it's like every year or every two years where there's a big thing i'm not sure if that's the case right it's we're we're only working based on our memories yeah a lot of times when you look at the past what happens is when you started learning closure you had to learn all the existing stuff and all the new stuff coming out at the same time right you could choose between all of them so it all seemed like oh there was so much in the early days but you don't really think about how much time it took to create those things that were new to you but had already existed so i always look at those kinds of things with a grain of salt when people say like oh things are slowing down it's like no maybe like so for instance i feel like this is a personal perception that i do not trust but i feel like conference talks are not as good as they were before and I watch a lot of conference talks and I find myself getting bored faster. I find myself stopping or skipping in the talks. What I wonder is, is it me or is it the talks? Because I've watched so many, I'm a different person from when I started. And there are definitely more and more talks online now. More and more conferences are recording their talks and there are more conferences So, you know, maybe that idea of getting bored is more that there might be other ones that I could be watching instead (laughs) that I'm drawn to. I just don't know. Like, I just remember finding so many great talks when I, when I first started getting into YouTube, this is like 2007, right? There were just so many great talks, but I just wonder if I haven't grown as a person and learned from those talks that now it seems like well you're just going over old material now if that same person gave that same talk today i'd be like ah this is old stuff like you're just rehashing the old you know the stuff everybody knows but maybe people don't know it that was kind of a rant but you know i've watched a lot of talks to do newsletter stuff and um, I've just found that like I'm not as interested in it anymore. One of the reasons why I evolved my newsletter away from that. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. More data probably needed. <laughs> yeah. So is there anyone you'd like to thank or mention in closing? Yeah. So I think the Closure community is better than it has ever been. I know that there's often drama in communities, but that's just the nature of communities. Like we just have you know, interpersonal things that come up and we have to talk about them. I think that the number of people getting into closure, the number of books coming out, the awesome stability of closure, like it's just amazing. And 
I just want to thank everyone who works on Closure Core, everyone who works on open source closure libraries, everyone who blogs, who answers questions in Slack. All of that is just so awesome. You all rock for doing that. And just thank you. Thank you so much for making it an awesome community. Yeah, I agree. And uh, anything you'd like to plug? Yeah. So actually, I have two things I'd like to plug. I'd hear a lot about it if I didn't mention that there is a YouTube show I do with three fine co-hosts. Of course. Yeah. It's called Apropos. And it's just us. We talk about some news. It's a lot of opinions. And then we get into the REPL session. So we have a problem, a little programming problem we work on, and we just dive into a REPL and, and try to solve it live. Like we usually have not done it before. And we answer questions in the YouTube chat. And it's just like a fun time. We always joke that the number of watchers goes up when we start on the REPL. <laughs> like people, people <laughs> don't want to hear us talk. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of people like to join in the discussion. And we don't know everything. So, like, we often ask our nice audience to help us figure out the right answer. So do find that. If you're into that, if you're into like more closure content, I feel like there's always room for more. And then, okay, the next thing I want to plug is purelyfunctional.tv. If you want to learn closure, I consider it the most comprehensive thing available online. I've lost count of how many hours of video there are on there. There's, you know, multiple books, amount of text free, available for free on there. And you can get a membership and get access to everything. See if your job will pay for it. If you're, you know, working in closure, they might have a budget, a training budget for you. And yeah, check it out. Ask me if you have any questions about it. Uh, you can find my email address and I'd, I'd love to just get in touch. Great. I really appreciate all you have done and are doing for the closure community and helping grow the next uh, generation of closure programmers. Well, you're welcome. I do what I can. <laughs> Daniel, thank you. You're you're another one out there spreading the word about closure. So thank you for everything you do. Great. All right. Well, uh, have a great day. You too.